First Kings chapter 18. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisle right now with Bibles. Just get their attention by waving to them and they'll get a Bible into your hands so you can follow along with us. Not only with your ears, but also with your eyes. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We pick things up uh, tonight in chapter 18, uh, beginning in verse 41. And maybe because of a two-week absence, we'll just do a brief recap. Uh, Chapter 18 is one of the highlights of the Old Testament, certainly in terms of the prophets of the Old Testament, a record of Elijah's life and uh, probably one of the the pinnacle event of his entire life and his ministry where he challenged Ahab to come to Mount Carmel with 450 prophets of Baal, where and in order to then challenge the nation of Israel, who was also invited to to come and witness kind of a showdown between Jehovah God, the God of the Jews, the God of the Bible and Baal and the situation that Elijah was addressing, really God through Elijah, was that the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, the Jews, they were faltering between two opinions. Uh, They felt that they had found some kind of middle ground and they were able to worship Baal and worship the Lord at the same time. And that's a, a lame way to live, a faulty way to live. It's to attempt to reconcile uh Two things that can't be reconciled. And so here is Elijah. He comes on the scene and he says, let's do a little bit of a test and we will allow the prophets of Baal to sacrifice an oxen, a bull, put down some wood and then call on their God to answer by fire. And whichever God answers by fire and consuming the sacrifice in the wood, he is God and all the children of Israel Uh, agreed that that would be a fair test. And so the prophets of Baal, given the greater part of the day uh, to endeavor to awaken their God and and get him active and kind of pump him up somehow and uh, consume the sacrifice, they were unsuccessful because Baal doesn't exist. The only way that Baal existed on any level in the Old Testament was simply when the devil would come behind some actions that were ascribed to him and then uh, do something supernatural that then they would come to believe that Baal was alive. But Baal was a figment of their imagination. He was a manufactured by human beings, which is the case with all false gods. And so they were unsuccessful. And Elijah called, prayed out to the Lord, and the Lord consumed his sacrifice and, and all of the wood and all of the dirt and all of the stones by fire. And the children of Israel came to the proper conclusion related to the miracle, what the miracle was all about. It wasn't a miracle just to God to say, hey, look at me, I'm with Popeye, and if I have my spinach, look how I can flex my muscles and I can do stuff that nobody else can do. But God doesn't do miracles that way. Um, he is all of those things. He's stronger and greater, etc., etc., etc. But this was a miracle that had a message. And the children of Israel got the message. And they cried out after God consumed the sacrifices, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And so there was that recognition that Baal is nothing. The Lord is God. And they ought to be worshiping the Lord entirely. And so uh, Elijah then proceeded to execute the 450 prophets of Baal in in accordance with the law of Moses. It was a a capital crime under the law of Moses to bring idolatry in among God's people. And they were were 
in, just in spades, they were uh, guilty of that. And so they were executed according to the law. And then Elijah, verse 41, said to Ahab, Ahab's up there on the mountain and he's he's watched this whole thing uh, happen before his eyes. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up. Get something to eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So apparently as all of this was going on, Ahab forgot to drink and forgot to eat. And, uh, and Elijah knows that in just a short order, he's going to have to jump in his chariot and uh, make the chariot ride from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. And so he's going to need some strength to do that. Now, remember, Elijah had prophesied a drought upon the land of Israel three and a half years earlier. And so that drought is still upon the land. But now with the children of Israel having turned at least on some level back to God and acknowledging Jehovah is the God of Israel, this uh, drought is going to come to an end. And so he's forewarned of that. The sound of the abundance of rain is coming. I mean, it's going to pour Ahab. So Ahab, he went up and he headed to the cafeteria and he grabbed a bite to eat and drink there. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he bowed down on the ground and he put his face between his knees. And so he's interceding. He's praying to the Lord here for rain. And he said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. The storm's going to come out of the Mediterranean. Go up and see if my prayer has had any impact on the storm coming in to bring an end to the drought. And so he went up and he and looked and he said, there's nothing. And seven times Elijah said to his servant, go again, go again, go again. And, and uh, he came back each time. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing. And then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. Doesn't look like much. And then Elijah said to him, go up and tell Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. If you plan on heading to Jezreel which was the location of uh, Ahab and Jezebel's second palace. You better get a head start right now because it's going to rain so hard these roads are going to be impassable. So you better get going and get moving. Now, it's interesting that here is uh, uh, Elijah as he's up on Mount Carmel and he prays one prayer to the Lord. And the Lord hears that prayer and immediately answers by fire and consumes the sacrifice on the top of Mount Carmel. Boom! The thing's just consumed and gone more than, than consumed. No trace of even the rocks left after it. And yet here in this prayer for rain, he prays over and over and over and over again before he sees an answer to prayer. And, uh, and it teaches us the importance of the persistence of prayer. God had told Elijah that this drought would come to an end based upon his timing, Elijah's timing, based upon his intercession. And so it, it took faith to pray and send his servant seven times to see. So why does God make us pray seven times or 70 times or 450 times? In some circumstances, before we see an answer to that prayer, and then other prayers are answered instantly. I don't have the slightest idea. But what it teaches us is this. It teaches us that we can't put God in a box on any of these kind of things. Sometimes he answers immediately. Sometimes he doesn't answer immediately. He keeps an awful lot to himself. 
that sometimes we find out later why he did it, why he did it. And then sometimes we don't understand why he did it at all. And maybe in heaven we'll find out if we care about it at all. But it it certainly teaches us the persistence of prayer and not to think, oh, because God answered the first time, these other times in my life, something must be wrong with me or God now that I'm having to pray seven times before I see an answer to the prayer. If if God did everything the same way all the time, we would have him reduced to a mathematical formula overnight and we would develop a relationship with those formulas rather than maintain a relationship with God. And I think he just does a lot of things just the way that he does, because it keeps us on our toes. It keeps us close to him because the solution to any of this, any victory or, uh, or mountaintop experience in the Christian life isn't about some formula. It's just about walking with him and seeing what it is that, that he does. And it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind. I mean, they haven't seen this for three and a half years. And there was a heavy rain. And so Ahab rode away and he went to Jezreel. And then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah And he girded his loins, which means he took his robe and they got those long robes and he just took that down right in here and he put it up through the belt. So he's wearing a pair of culottes by the time that was over. Those of you remember what those are. And uh, so you could give him the ability to to run. He's going to outrun the chariot all the way to to Jezreel. So it's absolutely supernatural that God God is giving him uh, the energy, uh, the uh, ability to do this, a 25 mile run through a drenching rain. And so this uh, divinely given energy and and this allowed him to do it without tripping over his garment. He girded up his loins and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. <laughs> no, I don't know that he uh, he did that, but he did beat him there. Now, what's fascinating about the uh, yeah enough about me imposing myself into the scriptures, correct? All right. Now, one of the interesting things about and why I take a little bit of time to set all of this up once again uh, is that when you look at Elijah coming off of that experience, uh, the mountaintop experience of Mount Carmel. God honoring his faith and his holiness and his walk with God in front of the whole nation. Uh, God bringing a drought to an end based upon his prayer. This person, pretty heady stuff to be to go through. You would think that a guy that had that as a part of his resume and his history would spend the rest of his prophetic life going from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience. And that if he ever, ever had a crisis in the rest of his life, That the one place he would never have a crisis in again would be in the area of faith. And yet that is precisely the area that Elijah is going to struggle with. The area of faith with God as we head into chapter 19. And so Ahab went back to Jezebel there in Jezreel. And he told Jezebel, notice that next word, all that Elijah had done. 
Of 450, we were there. This was his speech. This is what he said, the challenge he gave to the people. And then he and the prophets of Baal, they did this and this and they cut themselves and they danced like crazy people. And still they couldn't get Baal to do anything. And then he, at the time of the offering, takes the stones and the wood and the and God answers by fire and the whole. And then he kills all 450 of the prophets of Baal and he recounts the entire thing to to Jezebel. Jezebel thinks they're all going to come home in a great victory. Remember, Jezebel's the one who, in this time in Israel's history, um, uh, formally introduced the worship of Baal, Phoenician God, the worship of Canaanite God, into the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. So she's behind all of this. She's got a lot at stake in Baal winning this showdown on Mount Carmel. So she's the one that's turned the nation in that direction. So he tells, he recounts the whole story that Elijah had done and also how he had executed all of the prophets with the sword. And so uh, he informs her of this public humiliation of her God, Baal, the death of all of her prophets. And, of course, this was a, uh, a public humiliation of her, again, because she's the one that had introduced the worship of Baal into the nation as, as strongly as she had. And so she then becomes infuriated over all of this news. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. He's apparently still in Jezreel saying, let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, one of these prophets that you've killed by tomorrow about this time. And so she sends out a death warrant for him and and basically informs him, you're a dead man. You will be dead within 24 hours for what you've done. I'm talking to a dead man and she's got the power to try and pull something like that uh, off. And so Elijah's uh, response to all of this in verse three, when he saw that he arose and he ran for his life and he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. (laughs) Always when I read this, I want to turn my Bible up like this and shake it and say, where is my Elijah? Give me back my Elijah. So what, what happened to Elijah? I mean, here's the threat from one woman, a powerful woman, to be sure. And he forgets three and a half years of the miraculous of God in his life, and he goes running for his life. Now, a lot of times you'll read about this or you'll hear about this and they'll say he's running out of a fear of Jezebel. He, there may be an element of fear in what he's doing initially, but that's not the big thing that's driving him. He, it, it, he's not afraid of Jezebel he, supremely. He is not afraid of her taking his life. And the reason that I know that is two times in the passage, that we, as we get to it in just a few verses, he's going to ask God himself to kill him. He's not afraid of death. There's something else going on in this guy's noggin. Something else that's really a, 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 a producing the severest trial of faith that he ever faces in, in his entire ministry. And so he goes running 
and he flees to Beersheba, 90 miles away. Beersheba was a, a city in Judah, so he, he even gets out of the northern kingdom of Israel, goes into the southern kingdom of Judah, and, and Beersheba is deep in the south of the southern kingdom of Judah, and he feels that now he's way beyond the reach of Jezebel's power and anything that she might do in terms of pursuing him, and he's just put himself right out in the middle of the Judean wilderness of Israel out in the desert. He's gone as far as he could get away from the northern kingdom and still remain in Israel. Verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey after leaving off his servant in Beersheba. He goes even further into the wilderness now, a day further. And he came and he sat down under a broom tree. And that's kind of a big shrub that grows in the Middle East in Israel. It grows to about 12 feet tall, so you can get some shade out of it. It's not great shade, but he's not picky. He sat under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. And he said to God, that's what a prayer is, he's talking with God. It's enough. He said, now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He not only endeavors to quit the ministry at this point, uh, and this is called severe discouragement in ministry, but he prays for death. He prays for God to kill him. God, put me out of my misery. Are you anybody else in the room? Don't shout out. But anybody else thankful, almost as thankful to God for the prayers that he doesn't answer in our lives is for the prayers that he does answer. And the Lord, is, he, he knows how to just kind of sift through those prayers and prayers that are ridiculous. And so praise the Lord for the prayers that the Lord ignores and he doesn't answer. When, when Elijah states here that he's no better than his ancestors, He's really saying that he's no more, hasn't been any more successful than his forefathers in uh, getting rid of Baal worship from Israel. Now, remember in the New Testament, in the book of James, that James writes about Elijah as an example to us related to faith and related to prayer. And James wrote and he said, confess your trespasses, James Chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James wrote, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And when James refers to Elijah as a man with a nature like us, it, if it weren't for, it, it isn't that he's saying, if you can become like Elijah and have Mount Carmel experiences, then your prayers can be answered too. What he, he's talking about is this season in Elijah's life. Elijah... This experience exposed him to be a man just like any other man with a great God. And if God took and honored his life and honored his faith, then don't you be discouraged in your prayers when you're less than the hero of every 
story in your life or every situation that you find yourself in or your feet of clay get exposed. And so that that passage in James is intended to be an encouragement to us as we understand the life of of Elijah. You don't have to be perfect in order to have our prayers be effective. Now, following his prayer to the Lord, he then lay and he slept under the broom tree and he's got to be exhausted. He's run for this great long distance. He's emotionally, he's just spent. Physically, he's exhausted. So he just lies down and he falls asleep. And suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And so he he's awakened and he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So God, it's an angel food of some kind here. And so he ate it and he drank and he lay down again. Now that's tired. So there's an angel. He's in the presence of the angel. Woke him up. He eats what's been supplied. The angel of the Lord came back to him a second time. Touched them and said, arise and eat, because your journey is too great for you. And so he's instructed to eat, and evidently, and uh, uh, as we see in verse 8, he arose and he ate and he drank. And then he went on the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Wouldn't you love to find out what that food is? Is it like the Vita Vita Vigia Vita Mac? The old Lucy episode or what? We could just take a little something and see in 40 days. Wouldn't that be great when you're raising teenagers? You eat that because you're not going to get anything to eat for another 40 days. Well, that would really help the budget. But anyway, man, you just remember being hungry all the time as a kid. I mean, really hungry all the time as a kid. It's a wonderful age. God bless them. I, I don't begrudge them. And I have no bitterness in my heart. It's a great time of life. And so here is this. And, 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 he, and uh, uh, he ran on the strength of it. Forty days, 40 nights as far as Horeb. Horeb was about 100 miles away. So clearly he wasn't uh, running for, for, uh, for 40 straight days to cover 100 miles. Um, he, he made it there. And there were times of stopping and moving and starting and that kind of thing. And so, but it sustained him for the 40 days. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, which is you. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. God, what you're doing in this world is about to become a non-profit organization. I don't like good jokes, but I like dumb jokes, and that's a really dumb joke. But he thinks it's all over uh, for him. Now, when the Lord comes to us in our lives and he says, what are you doing here? I mean, God should be able to pose that question to us anywhere we are in life, any circumstance we find ourselves in, and we should be able to say to him immediately, 
Why am I here? I am here because you directed me here. But but Elijah can't say that to the Lord right now because the Lord didn't direct him to to flee out of Jezreel and do all of the things that he's doing. And he certainly didn't direct him to attempt to uh, didn't not attempt to quit the ministry. He's he's quit. He is run to almost to another country. It's interesting that the Lord doesn't ask Elijah uh, why he's in the cave, uh, though that's the question that Elijah answers. He asks him, what are you doing here? And what was Elijah doing there? Nothing. And God didn't call Elijah to be his prophet. He didn't invest three and a half years of the miraculous and all of these things into his life for him to quit and do nothing for the rest of his life under his own self-will because things haven't turned out the way that he wanted them to go. So what is he doing here? He's doing nothing. He answers a question God doesn't answer. God didn't ask him why he was there. That's the question that, that he attempts to, to answer. There's a lot of work that God wants to do through Elijah yet. And the implication of God's question is that he had deserted his post. And God's going to rebuke him for that. Elijah's response there in verse 10, and you can translate verse 10. I've been zealous for the Lord God of hosts and the children of Israel have forsaken all of that. And the translation of it is basically it's a rebuke to God. He's upset with God. And, uh, and, and the complaint is that he's been doing all of this work, all of this service. He's been faithful to God. And it appears that God has been silent and God has been indifferent. And the righteous or unrighteous are still prosecuting uh, the uh, uh, righteous. And, Lord, I've done everything that uh, you've called me to do. I've done it with zeal. I've done it in the midst of the worst apostasy the nation has ever known. I alone am left and I'm on life support in terms of how it goes for prophets around here. And Elijah's response revealed that he felt he was standing completely alone and completely defenseless against the ungodly forces that were threatening to overpower him. God, I am as good as dead. Lord, it looks like we're losing and the wicked are winning. Your work in Israel is about to become uh, completely destroyed. Your voice, your name completely obliterated from the northern kingdom. And Elijah is very, very discouraged. And I'm convinced that the greatest of servants will find themselves in this place at one time or another. I don't care how strong we are. I don't care how brave we are. I don't care how bold we are. I don't care how mightily we've been used. And I think that as we look at Elijah, and it's a great study in a certain personality type, a certain kind of person that God calls to serve him. Elijah is a zealot. He's an absolute zealot for God and for the things of God. And I think that it not only... Will the um, not not only will everyone sooner or later in our service to the Lord face this kind of discouragement in our service to the Lord. But I think that Elijah's are more vulnerable to this than probably any other type of person in the body of Christ. 
As I look at this chapter in Elijah's life, I have wondered to myself, what in the world is it that could cause such a bold, powerful, fearless prophet of God not only to quit his ministry, but wish to die? He can't kill himself. He's a good Jewish boy. You can't commit suicide. Not Old Testament, not New Testament. I don't say that you don't go to heaven if you do, but no Christian should ever do that. No one should do that, period. Because life doesn't end by the ending of this life. It doesn't solve anything, suicide. But here he is, he's looked, and, and, and he want, not only wants to quit the ministry, but he wants God to just kill him and just take him home. And I see two causes here, and both of them are very interesting to me, and I think they're very helpful for us to understand. Cause number one is that Elijah is filled with a sense that what I'm doing doesn't seem to be making any difference at all. And I think that that's one of the most powerful weapons that the devil uses to discourage God's servants to try and get them to quit. Elijah's been in the ministry for four years. He has nothing to show for it. And how often God can call us to do something, children's ministry, on the other side of the world, whatever it might be. And we look at what it is and we've invested four years, ten years, forty years into something. And you look at it and you say, I'm completely wasting my life and what I'm doing here. There's no uh, fruit to, 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 to be shown for it. What difference am I making? It doesn't seem like I'm making any difference at all. Wickedness just continues on as it always has, and it's, in fact, it's growing, wouldn't make any difference if I quit or if I died. When you feel that way, we should never feel like we're the first ones to feel that. I know a man personally who is being used by God to reach millions and millions and millions of people in this world with the gospel. God has raised them up to do it. And yet I remember having a conversation with him as he looked at those millions in the context of the billions that fill the world. And he was discouraged. He thought to himself, what difference am I making in this world in the light of the greatness of the need? The second cause of his discouragement is what I would refer to as unmet expectations. Things haven't turned out the way that he thought that they would. God hasn't done things the way that he thought God was going to do them or should do them. That is a very, very powerful discouragement, not only in our ministries, but in our Christian life. And I think it's very important to notice that concerning an Elijah is never some physical difficulty or some loss of comfort that they complain about. He never and they never complain about ravens or drought or drying streams or being fed by a widow woman. That never, ever discourages an Elijah. But an Elijah has a weakness. And Elijah is discouraged because Mount Carmel didn't translate into what he thought it should. It did not have the spiritual impact that he felt it should have. In, in the nation at that time. It didn't bring the revival that he thought it would bring. And here he is, he's given it his best shot, and the nation is still in apostasy. Evil still seems to be winning. Ahab and Jezebel are still ruling, and God didn't destroy him when he had the perfect chance to do that. And worst of all, 
instead of Mount Carmel being a place where everything got turned around and right side up, where momentum in Israel turned toward righteousness, God allowed Jezebel to threaten Elijah with his life. And the biggest problem that Elijah has at this point in time in his life and in his ministry is not with Ahab and Jezebel. The crisis he's having with his faith is he's got a big problem with God. Now, I'm not going to ask you if you've ever been in that place. Where th- I mean, his whole world is spinning. His head is spinning. He can't tell up from down. Nothing's turned out the way that he should. He's completely confused. I can think of two times in 25 years here where I walked right along this canal that headed head out and went this way. And one time I was right in the area of where our property is here. And I said to God, I, I don't get this at all. The circumstance that was going on, what was in the middle of the whole thing. I just don't get this, Lord. I don't get this. And I just kept walking and walking and walking and walking with him and talking and talking and talking with him until I finally heard his voice related to the situation. But where Elijah is, that's real in the Christian life. And it's a difficult place to be. And that's why I relate to him, not in terms of how God used him in in that kind of a great way, but I think I understand a little bit about what he might be feeling, and I think that you do too. Elijah isn't doubting the power of God. What he's doubting is the wisdom of God and the ways of God. There are some people who have a crisis of faith, and their crisis of faith occurs because they lack faith. Elijah has a crisis of faith precisely because he has faith. He knows God. His whole life has been one miracle after another. He knows what God could do in the nation in an instant without even breaking a sweat. And yet he isn't. And he cannot for the life of him figure out why God with all of that power and all of that ability to make all of that change and to do it in an instant isn't making that change. And Elijah's problem isn't a crisis of faith in the sense that he doubts the Lord's ability. His struggle is with what he knows that God could do instantly and yet he isn't and it's inexplicable to him as to why God wouldn't do it. And so the lesson here related to Elijah, if we just stopped it right there, we could just say, well, the lesson of Elijah is he got discouraged. You get discouraged. All God's children get discouraged. Now, don't you feel better about that? The fascinating God does something fascinating in this whole situation to lift Elijah up out of this funk that he's in. And, and, I, and I spend time on it tonight because it's a favorite passage of mine, but also because I have a history with this passage. 
And I also know what it can mean to individuals that are in that place tonight. Where what God is doing is very, very confusing. I want you to notice that God does three things to lift Elijah out of his discouragement. And the first thing is found in verse 11. He said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains, broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And the idea is that God was in the still small voice. And the first thing that God does with Elijah when he's in this place is he reveals to Elijah, you're doubting my wisdom. And so I'm going to teach you a little bit more about my ways and a little bit more about myself. And so as Elijah stands on that mountain, a great wind comes by. God wasn't in the wind. Earthquake. God wasn't in the earthquake. Fire. God wasn't in the fire. Finally, this still small voice and God was in the still small voice. And what the Lord is speaking was speaking to Elijah. And I think of all Elijah's sense is that not all of life in ministry is going to be Mount Carmel's. It's not all going to be lived up on the mountaintop. It's not all going to be obvious power shows and and, and demonstrations of that kind. And God is speaking to Elijah and communicating to him that he is not any less God and he is not working any less powerfully when things are quiet and still. He's still working. He's still in control when things are quiet and still. Fully God, fully active, even when our lives and ministry seem to be quiet for a time. And he's teaching Elijah not to judge the the importance of his service to the Lord by whether it's wind or fire or earthquake, but that still small voice ministries and seasons in life are important works of God's Spirit too. I'll tell you, that's not easy for an Elijah. That's not an easy thing for an Elijah to learn. Because by personality with an Elijah, it always has to be earthquake. It always has to be fire. It always has to be wind or God's cause is lost. But God reveals to him that that isn't true. And notice the second thing that he does. Um, Verse 13. And after it was, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the mantle. He went out, stood at the entrance of the cave. And then suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah, he gave the same speech again, probably not as convinced of his speech, but it's the only speech he has. And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and they've torn down your altars and they've killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. And then the Lord wonderfully, the second thing that he does in Elijah's life is he just simply tells them the next thing to do. He said, go return. I won't accept your resignation, much less kill you. It's really kind of funny. If you put yourself in Elijah's place here, it's like, hey, somebody's trying to quit down here. Can I get anybody's attention up there? I'm trying to end my ministry. 
right now. And God's just going, I can't hear anything. Can you hear anything? And Michael and Gabriel says, I can't hear anything. Sounds like some crazy person shouting down. We don't listen to those things, do we? He can't get anybody to take his resignation. And so the Lord said to him, go return. Go back. You, the post you vacated is waiting for you. You go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, I want you to anoint Haziel as king over Syria. And also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, uh, Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. And so he just simply tells Elijah what it is that he is supposed to do next. Doesn't accept the, uh, the uh, uh, you know, quitting and, and the, the resignation. Any of that doesn't even give him the option to quit. You go anoint Haziel, anoint Jehu, anoint Elisha. And I think what God's communicating to Elijah is, Elijah, don't be so overwhelmed at the size and the power of evil in this world or even among my people. You simply take your place in this big picture of mine, this big work of mine that I'm doing worldwide, and you leave the big picture to me. And Elijah's lament here. I mean, what difference is, is, will my life and my ministry make? My life doesn't seem to be making any difference at all. And God's answer to the Elijah is, that's not your problem. The world is not your problem. Elijah's want to save the whole world. They want to take on everybody's ministry, responsibilities that are way beyond what they can do. And God looks at them and says, your problem is not the whole world. That's my problem. Your problem is to be faithful to what I've called you to do. Elijah's need to hear that. Because they do tend to take the weight of the whole nation and the whole world upon themselves. And the Lord reminds Elijah that's not his job. Elijah was just simply to do what God told him to do next. And I'll tell you, it's so simple, but it's so needed for those of us who have a trace of Elijah in us. I'll tell you, that counsel of God to Elijah has saved me many, many times through the years. Where I look at how I'm spending my life, and you look in the grand scheme of things and you say, what difference am I making? What change? Is Modesto getting better? Is California getting better? Is the United States getting better? Is the world getting better? What difference is my life making in terms of how I'm spending it? Because we Elijahs, we want our life to make a difference. God tells us just to leave the big picture to Him. And just do the next thing that he tells us to do. And we can do that. We can't change the whole world, but we can do that. And God has told me that so many times through the years. Kyle, you have got your nose. That is not your deal. That's not your problem. That's not a situation I want you introduced into. You just do the very next thing 
that I've told you to do and keep your focus on that. And it keeps an Elijah reeled in in a way that's healthy for a zealot. And then notice in verse 18, the third thing that God speaks to Elijah, he said, yet I have reserved 7000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. The Lord informs Elijah that God's plan doesn't depend on him. Elijah's think everything depends upon them in the whole wide world. They suffer from this exaggerated sense of self-importance and how much they're needed and all of this kind of thing. And sooner or later, I think every Elijah will run out of his own or her own strength and energy and resources and then in exhaustion reveal the thing that has driven them, at least in part, is the sense it all depends on me. I alone, I alone, he says in verse 10, again in verse 14, it all depends on me. It's all going to collapse without me. And then the Lord reveals, I've got 7,000 times the resources you think I have, Elijah. Wow. God's plan and God's work in this world is never dependent upon anyone as weak and tenuous as you and I. It does not depend upon us. It depends upon His grace. And it's humbling to hear that. And it's humbling to have God speak that to us. But it's freeing in our lives that brings perspective. The fascinating thing to me about Elijah is that he thought his life was over. He thought his ministry was over, but he could not in his wildest dreams know what God had planned for him on the other side of this crisis of faith. Fiery chariot up into heaven. He's going to anoint Elisha to become the next prophet after him. He's going to be he's going to be in a very select company some years after this on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Jesus. And interestingly, all three of those that are key figures on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, of course, number one in that that little triunity there, all three of them went through a season of 40 days and 40 nights of, of fasting. And then we know from the book of Revelation that Elijah has an end times uh, appointment of being one of the two witnesses that's going to witness to the Jews during the great tribulation period. All of that's on the other side of this crisis of faith. And he has no idea what God has planned. And I think it's good to remember these lessons related to his life. God is working in the quiet times too. Just do the next thing he tells you to do. Remember, it doesn't depend completely upon you. Just stay faithful to God and then watch what it is that he ends up doing as we're faithful to heed him in those areas. And so he departed from there and he found Elisha. So his first act of of, uh, ministry to these three that God had called him to go to, he decided the first thing that he was going to do was go to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke 
of oxen before him, and he was with the twelfth yoke. And then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle onto Elisha. The hometown of, of, uh, of Elisha is in the Jordan Valley, about halfway between the Dead Sea and uh, the Sea of Galilee, northern kingdom of, of Israel. And uh, apparently Elijah again thought that this commission of God was the most important of the three commissions. And so he, he initiates it, uh, it, it first of all. It's fascinating because you would think that the Lord would have told um, Elijah to go to uh, Jerusalem to find his successor as prophet or maybe to go to one of the schools of the prophets to find his successor. But the Lord didn't do that. He said, I'm going to give you a name. And when you find him, you're going to discover that his preparation for ministry has occurred behind a plow and yoke of oxen. I think it's important to realize for all of us as Christians who look and say, God, I want to be used by you. God, I want to do great things for you. I want my life to make a difference in this world. I don't I, I want. I, I want it to be significant in human history in terms of your kingdom. And here you are in school or you're in some kind of a job situation or a this or a that. And it looks like I'm in a dead end situation. I didn't get to go to seminary. I didn't get to go to this. I didn't get to go to that. And I'm going to be completely overlooked. Don't you believe it? God knows where every one of his servants are. He knows the plan that He has for every servant. He knows how to prepare us and how unique His preparations can be. I think about Moses, 40 days, I mean 40 years, he's herding sheep that don't even belong to him. I mean, what kind of a pension do you get out of that? How mind-numbing of a job is that to follow sheep around in a desert, I'm not talking about Colorado or Montana, I'm talking about the desert. And yet there couldn't have been a more perfect preparation of his life for what God was going to do in making him a shepherd of the whole nation of Israel and bring them out of Egypt. God's ways of preparing us for what he's called us to I don't, I don't begrudge anyone that goes to seminary and Bible college and all of those things. I think it's better to be smarter than dumber about the Bible in terms of what we're, what we're trying to, to do. And so I, I, it wasn't the path that God took me on. But I don't look at everything through, you know, those lenses. But I personally... I don't think it's so great for a person to go right from school and then into a seminary and then right in into a position of oversight in the body of Christ. I think it's good to hold other work first. And it's just my opinion. And to get knocked around a little bit and some learn some stuff there that doesn't get learned in those classrooms about life, about people, about a lot of stuff that no book can teach us. 
And so don't you ever look at your life and say, I'm going to be missed. It's going to bypass me. I don't have the opportunities that others have. God knew right where Elisha was, and he knew right how to prepare him for what was, how he was going to spend his life. Now, it's interesting to me that Elisha was called while working. And it's interesting, I think, to notice in the Bible that God usually calls people who are busy. Very industrious and, and very, very hardworking. Again, Moses was called while he was caring for sheep. Gideon was called while he was threshing wheat. Peter, James, and John were called, busy in their fishing business. Nehemiah called when he was a cupbearer to the king. There is no place in Christian service related to the kingdom of God for a lazy good for nothing. Or slothful person. There's no future for them. There's no place at all. A person can come up to me, and, and a couple of times it's happened through the years, and it hasn't quite been said like this, but almost like this. Hey, Pastor, I've been fired from my last five jobs. I think God's calling me to the ministry. And as God is my witness, I'm looking for an exit to just run away from this person. And you just look them in the eye and you say, you are already in the ministry and you are failing in the ministry. If you can't hold a job in this world, how in the world is God going to entrust some big, gigantic thing that you're looking to in the kingdom of God and to make you some major influence in the kingdom of God? It's not going to happen. So here's this place where he's just... Busy and he's hard working and probably hard, probably has no idea that he's, he's that all of this is working to prepare him for this kind of service. And I think that our character is is revealed in how we handle the ordinary as Christians. So often we think I'll become a hard worker, I'll become a diligent, or I'll become as soon as God gives me this area of ministry or that area or this title or this and and it. it we will only be what we've been all along in the new place. The need for that kind of character. I think of Jesus in this vein, and it was said of Jesus that he has done all things well. And he started in a carpenter's shop, by the way, for 30 years before he ever started public ministry. And then being faithful in that, of course, he moved on to the things that he had been ultimately called to. When Elijah throws his mantle onto Elisha, that was when a prophet would throw his cloak around another person that symbolized that he was passing his power and the authority of his office to that next individual. And Elisha understands that that's exactly the meaning of what's just happened here. And it's obvious because of his reaction here. You notice his response. He left the oxen and he ran after Elijah and he said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow after you. Now, evidently, Elisha comes from a very wealthy family because they had 12 yoke of oxen. And when it says he was, he was plowing and farming with the 12th yoke, the idea is that there were 11 other yoke of oxen being handled by the servants, and he was the 12th, and they're crisscrossing this field and for the production of, of, of the field. And so he speaks to Elijah and he asks if he can just go home and basically say goodbye to his mom and to his dad. 
And the law of Moses, he's a good Jewish boy. The law of Moses said, honor your father and honor your mother. So he wants to go home and be respectful to them and uh, let them know what he's going to do. This is not the same scenario of what Jesus condemned in Luke chapter 8, where uh, a man came to him and said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That man was looking for the approval of his parents to follow God's calling. How many of us would follow God's calling if we had uh, the approval of our family in order to do that? So Jesus was addressing that here is, is Elisha. He is absolutely going to follow Elijah and, uh, and just wants to be respectful to his parents in doing so. And then Elijah, he cracks me up. He said to him, end of verse 20, he says to Elijah, go back again for what have I done to you? I mean, it's, it, it's so unusual of a reply. What have I done to you? The idea is you go do what you please. I'm, I, what have I done to stop you? I've just done what I've done. You go do what you're going to do. I just bring the message of God's calling and what you do with it is none of my business. That's between you and him. I'm not a mediator between you and God. I don't want to be a mediator between you and God and, and baby you along for the rest of your ministry, whether you obey God and be faithful to God and his call on your life. That's your own business. Wow. I like Elijah and I like Elisha. They're two entirely different people. Elisha's we're going to see he's he's a son of consolation. He's a comforter. He's a hugger. He'd take the babies and kiss them. You want to see a baby dedication, you watch an Elisha do a baby dedication. You don't want Elijah doing a baby dedication. Yeah, you do. I'm just teasing. But they're two entirely different, two entirely different people. And here is Elijah. He looks and he's not going to let Elisha build one tiny ounce or iota of dependence on him. Don't you be thinking I'm going to baby you along and get you and, and you're going to feed off of me for motivation and serving God and strength. And you you get this going between you and God, because I'm not in your life to do that. Then you got other guys that encourage other people into ministry. Come here, come here, can't come, come here, can't. Group hug, come on, come on, somebody. Don't change either of them. There's a friend, a very good friend, who's in that second category. I won't name him by name because I used an illustration recently, or actually a little, uh, some time ago, while we were in the law of Moses about something that had happened at a pastor's conference on the East Coast. The pastor listens to these studies as a part of his sermon preparation and he called me up and asked if it was him he got a kick out of it I never returned his call because I was on vacation and stuff so I was really busy and everything I never revealed the sources of these illustrations anyway but I got a friend who has encouraged more people into ministry including myself and he is an Elisha through and through. 
And Elisha needs to be an Elisha. But Elijah's need to be Elijah's. And they, you need both of them, the body of Christ. You know what bugs me? I've taken 55 minutes to get this now. To, I can get this off my chest and have it bug you. But I'm, I'm kidding about having a, something that bugs me a little bit. But it does bother me, and I'm, I'm serious about it. The Bible says that we're not to judge one another, not to judge our hearts, not to judge our motives. And a lot of times I hear conversations, and since I'm around pastors or in contact with pastors a fair amount of my time, I hate to say it, but it, it's not only representative of the body of Christ as a whole, but it's, it's very well represented among pastors. Where there's a tendency to look at a minister or a pastor or a servant of the Lord and say, well, he should be more this. He should be less of that. And they analyze and they figure out. And most often when you look at what they're saying, a person should or shouldn't be, you, and then you look at their life, you realize they're trying to make this person into them. And the thing that I've noticed through the years as I've watched it and listened to it is as I analyze what people are thinking need to change in another servant's life, if you were to take that characteristic out of their life, they would die in the ministry. That boldness or that gentleness or that whatever characteristic that we would look and say, that is something that's just got to go out of their life. I'm not talking about sin or carnality. I'm just talking about differences of personality. And I think to myself, if you take that out of that guy's life, he doesn't last a week. It's that characteristic in his life that causes him to leave buildings at a single bound and run through walls. And you're going to take it away from him? You have no idea. And we so misjudge others in the body of Christ when we assess and think everybody's got to be all the same in, in the body of Christ in order for us to be effective. God forbid. I'm thankful for the Elijahs and I'm also thankful for the Elishas. Elijah was not an encourager. He was not a backslapper. He gives no encouragement and will not throughout his ministry to Elisha. He makes that guy get dependent upon God or die. That's how he does it. It's not that way for everybody. It's how he does it. I just want to encourage you and how God has made you. Carnality. Oh, come on. Let's be done with carnality. But we can get so many people getting us to second guess Christians, well-meaning Christians. Second guessing how God has made us and imprinted into our lives in a way that he knows is necessary for us to not only succeed in the ministry that he's called us into, but to even survive it and to withstand that kind of assessment and the paralysis of analysis that goes on endlessly in this culture and is infiltrated thoroughly the body of Christ. God has called you a certain way. He's given you a certain personality. He's refined that personality. 
He's called you to do something that he hasn't called the Elisha to do. And you need to be confident in how God has made you. Go back again. For what have I done to you? And so Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, and he slaughtered them. He boiled their flesh using the oxen equipment. They broke up the whole thing in the wood to get the fire going. And he created a feast and he gave the food of of the oxen to the people and they ate. In other words, he's burning bridges. This is what my life was once about, plowing with these oxen and this yoke and, and, and here, here with the plow and all. I'm done with this. God's called me to do something else. I'm burning the bridges to all of this. And then he arose and he followed Elijah and became his servant. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of this chapter and that there's nothing new under the sun. We all feel the same things. We all go through the same things. We all have the same crises, no matter how great, whether an Elijah in the Old Testament or us here in this new covenant. We thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that Elijah's life is to us. And we thank you, Lord, for the lessons that you taught him and that you graciously included them in your book so that we could learn them ourselves and be encouraged as well. Thank you, Lord, for how you've made us. Thank you, Lord, on how on these all of these.